volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. From Washington, this is the On the Hill podcast. Tom Fitzgerald coming to you from the studios of WTTG Fox 5 in Washington. We thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us here. Um, as we sit here in the month of December right now, we are uh, winding up 2018. We are about to embark on 2019, which will mean a whole new cast of characters and arrangements at the table here in Washington because of the incoming majority of the Democrats in the United States House of Representatives. What is that going to mean um, in the White House? What is it going to mean uh, both for the country and here in town? And also... What is on the pike as far as our um, continuing trade uh, wars that have been going on uh, over in China that have been affecting our economy of late? Um, joining us this weekend on the Fox 5 On the Hill podcast, Riley Waters. He is with the Heritage Foundation, and uh, he is a, a economics expert, guru, trade uh, trade fellow over at uh, Heritage, and uh, Riley, we thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. Uh, you know, when you talk about trade sometimes with people, it's one of those things that if you were in school might roll up some people's eyeballs in the back of their head. They're like, oh, why do I care about this? How does it affect me? Um, I'm sure you've heard that, but anybody who's looked at Wall Street over the last couple of days has to be saying, there's, some, there's something going on here. So what's, what's, what's going on with our relationship with China specifically, that may or may not have a connection to what we're seeing this volatility up one day, down one day, these sure. records sure. that are being set almost every other day right now. Uh, well, um, just sort of an intro to Trade 101. You yeah. know, China <laughs> is actually our largest trading partner if you include both our imports and exports, uh, just being out Canada by you know a few billion here or there. Mm -hmm. um, what uh, the current administration is doing is uh, they're trying to readjust the U.S.-China economic relationship um, seeing it as being unfair for the past couple decades. Uh, what they believe is that China has more barriers, mo more taxes on American imports, uh, more barriers to trade and investment than the United States has on Chinese imports mm -hmm. or other types of investments. Uh, and then there's also the issue of intellectual property theft by Chinese entities, which they're trying to readjust. Um, so what the Trump administration has done has taken a very aggressive uh, approach to re-establishing the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, and so what we are in the middle of is a trade dispute, a trade war even, if you will. Um, this past week, the market has been very volatile uh, in response to mm -hmm. some news in the trade front. Uh, you, uh, President Trump and President Xi met in Argentina over the weekend, and they came to a pretty good deal. Uh, at least a step in the right direction toward ending the trade dispute. Uh, the problem is um, there's still a, a mass amount of uncertainty in the markets to whether there will actually be um, a deal anytime soon mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps things could get worse. The president likes to talk about America first. And 
you know, he's the president of the United States. He should be thinking about uh, uh, American first. But in 2018 now, in the 21st century, does that make a lot of sense anymore as an operating principle? Be because you say China's our largest trade partner. We have to do business with them. It's, it's not an option just to keep everything in-house, is it? You know, um, the, the trade first aspect, you know, it, it comes down to what you believe that actually means. Now, if you believe what do you, what do you believe it means, if you believe uh, American companies first, I might actually disagree with you on this mm -hmm. because American companies aren't necessarily always American companies uh, by sense. You know, they have an obligation to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't necessarily have an obligation to the U.S. government. These are private entities. We're not a socialist country. We're not a communist country. You know, the businesses that operate within the United States don't work for the United States government. Uh, what I would necessarily put more weight is in the category of freedom. And so what we are mm -hmm. seeing uh, in trade these days, not just within the United States, but other countries, is sort of a move away from free trade. Uh, the freedom to trade uh, with no cost, no additional cost by set by governments uh, through either tariffs, which are a tax on uh, imports, or uh, other barriers such as, you know, uh, harassment or um, longer, uh, what do you call it, inspection days mm. at the ports, things like this. When you bring up things like that with corporations not necessarily being beholden to the United States, I, I imagine some people probably hear that and go, well, well, wait a minute, they're American companies. Shouldn't they, shouldn't they, you know, have an interest in the United States? But or, or is it more now the case that these companies, you know, say, you know, look at the automakers, they're global companies there. They're not really just beholden to the United right. States. I mean, uh, they don't ignore the United States. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these companies are American companies. They were made in America, right? Mm -hmm. So they still have that that heritage of sorts uh, coming back to the United States. But uh, they can't ignore China's market, right? China's been growing at 8% a year for the last couple of decades. The United States has been growing at 2 right? So, you know, there's a, there's a difference in cost. And so some companies are more than happy and more than willing to sort of give up some of their freedoms to be able to access the Chinese market. Um, which might go against some American principles, principles that we have. How has China been able to do this? Because, you know, all our lives, all our lives, we were told that the communist model doesn't work, that the communist model is doomed to failure. In fact, we saw it on our own lifetimes. Soviet Union, you know, crumbled in, in, in 1989. We just, you know, ended a week with the funeral of George H.W. Bush where we, you know, kind of pulled that one out and talked about it for, for a couple of days about how that economic system did not work. What did they do to, to change the old Soviet model in such a way that they are just on fire right now in the Chinese economy? Uh, well, I'll just point out real quick, they're not on fire. They're as, not on no, fire? They're not as fire as they used to be. Okay. Um, they have a lot of really sort of deep economic problems that they're going to have to address over the next 10 years. Um, their GDP is going to continue to slow down just like it has for the last five. Um, the, the difference between China and sort of the USSR, you know, mm -hmm. back in the day, yeah. um, is, uh, you know, I would actually argue that <coughs> the... You don't the, have to argue. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I, would, I would propose that the uh, USSR model was a little bit more, maybe a little bit more communist, uh, and the Chinese model is a little bit more socialist. Uh, the Chinese model is a little bit more decentralized. Mm -hmm. uh, you not only have the state-owned enterprises at sort of what we would consider the federal level, right? Uh, but they also have state-owned enterprises sort of at the state or provincial level. So you still had a lot of 
uh, autonomy, I guess, in a lot of the bureaucracy. You had a lot more officials working on things. It wasn't, you know, just one guy telling everyone what to do. It was one guy telling 12 guys, telling mm -hmm. 800 guys, telling, you know, right. 1,200 guys what to do. So it, it, did, it really broke down. Uh, not to say that it was, you know, uh, you know, great for them. This mm -hmm. is the, the issue that they have to make up with now. But it was better than what USSR saw. One thing we've heard less and less of over the last couple of years, and I think maybe even going back into the Obama administration, is human rights. Mm -hmm. um, has that been taken off the table in exchange for the larger reward of having this giant of an uh, economic trade partner uh, continue to be a giant of an economic trade partner? Do we not talk about human rights in China as much as we maybe but should? We don't. I don't think we do. Um, yeah. Certainly, the, the what's happening sort of in Xinjiang, with Western China, with the sort of in internment of uh, mm. Chinese Muslims uh, is is a, a atrocity of sorts. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think it was purposefully taken off the table, though. I think people actually just don't talk about human rights as much as we used to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we see what's happening sort of in uh, Southeast Asia as well. Um, you know, I maybe maybe we have human rights fatigue after the whole Syrian crisis, mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly not something we shouldn't ignore. And w you know, one of the reasons I was thinking about this is because, in addition to you know, during the funeral for George H. W. Bush, talking about the um, you know the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, it was also brought up, you know, the Tiananmen Square mm -hmm. up uprising, um, and that was on the forty-first president's watch as well, too. And that was a time, you know, people. You know, might not remember. Right. There was a, a week there where we weren't sure whether or not the Chinese government was going to survive that, and in fact, it did. It came back stronger and probably more repressive than ever. Um, can the Chinese model teach the United States about anything that we could somehow incorporate into how we do business? And I'm not proposing. Um, communism or socialism <laughs> here for the United States, but are there is there a synergy? Let's use that word. That's that's a techie, fun word. Is there a synergy that we could somehow uh, duplicate here in this country, which at times our policies seem to be scattershot? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think there's you know there's probably a lesson to be learned um, in, in a couple aspects. The first is obviously. You know, you can't necessarily have an overarching government model and not expect some sort of um, mm -hmm. negative consequences to come out of this. You know, China has if you think the United States has a debt problem, China, China has a huge debt problem. Right. Um, but I think in, in sort of the benefits side of this, not just, you know, um, attacking the Chinese model, um, you know, the the Chinese Communist Party, they are they're very slow just like any other mm -hmm. uh, regulators across the world. They're very slow at regulating new technology. And so it's allowed China to sort of take a lead in a lot of aspects of technology, like financial technology. Mm. Talking about the debt, how much of our debt does China still have? Um, China owns roughly, uh, I think, uh, $1.3 of um, of U.S. Treasury holdings. So mm -hmm. I, yeah. um, if I can remember the numbers correctly, um, it's probably about 6%. So does that w when you sit down with somebody who owns your debt, mm. it seems on the surface of it that that puts them at an advantage. You'd think that um, that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, w the benefit of I don't know. Maybe this isn't a benefit. The, the, the 
sort of the silver lining of all this is China just can't unload all that one day, right? Mm -hmm. um, even if it did, it would be probably better to the uh, the betterment of the United States and detriment to China. Mm -hmm. um, what it would do is, you know, American stocks and bonds, you know, no matter what what sort of environment or economic situation the United States is in, is mm -hmm. always very sort of in high demand. And so what this will do is, is that they started to unload their, their holdings of treasuries and bonds would drive up the market, mm -hmm. would sort of actually give benefit to it, and uh, it would have a lot of these sort of you know, ripple effects. Want to uh, change directions here on the planet. I want to talk about Brexit a little bit because there's been some movement uh, over the past couple of weeks as far as uh, finalizing the Brexit deal, uh, Great Britain pulling out of the European uh, union. We've had some discussions. Some of our other guests included the uh, the ambassador uh, to the United States from Ireland, and Ireland had some very serious concerns at some point about you know maintaining an open border and uh, its access to um, what it had enjoyed uh, over the previous European Union relationship. Right now, why should Americans care about the European Union? Why should they care about Brexit? Uh, well, I think it all comes down to sovereignty, right? Mm -hmm. Nations being able to make decisions for themselves. You know, going back to, you know, what does the UK really think? What rules can implement? Um, you know, there is a lot of concern of or the overarch, overarching control that the European Union and European Commission have over a lot of the nations. Uh, you know, this is a constant debate that they have to deal with. And this is an issue we're actually going to have. Um, going forward as the United States pursues this free trade agreement with the European Union because mm -hmm. you know uh, usually you know the president has talked about his um, desire to negotiate bilateral agreements so like US and Japan mm -hmm. uh, there's a little bit of ease in doing this because you, you have one country to talk to uh, with the European Union the European Union has to represent 28 different countries and so not only do they have to figure out what the United States wants in its deal, they had to figure out what every one of its members wants. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a lot of, um, I don't know, headache <laughs> going yeah. forward, I think, in this. What is the uh, existential threat to the European Union moving forward if, say, Great Britain decides and, and, and does in fact leave? And we've heard of a, you know, talk of a Frexit as well, too, that could the French now uh, maybe look at this as well, too. Obviously, we've been seeing riots in the streets over economic issues in Paris. Could this whole thing fall apart now without the UK uh, as one of the central members? Uh, I don't know. That's tough to say. Um, you know, certainly the UK is a, is a huge player. I, you know, the presence that they have not just in the EU, but sort of in the international global economy as itself is significant. Um, to say that the whole system would collapse I think that might be an mm -hmm. overstatement um, but certainly down the road you know you might you might see more of this but you know then the question comes back to are they you know, why are they leaving right mm -hmm. is it a question of sovereignty or is it just sort of follow the leader you know? mm. let's talk about NAFTA because uh, obviously the president when he campaigned railed uh, uh, against NAFTA and you know after 30 years perhaps it was time to take another look at, at NAFTA, it has been uh, replaced now by a, a new agreement. What's different between this new agreement and what we've lived under for the last 30 years in, in the midst of NAFTA? Well, um, so, uh, you know, the, the deal that was signed, the, the actual new deal between the U.S., uh, Canada, and Mexico was signed uh, by the presidents uh, and prime ministers um, 
at the G20 this past weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it's still fresh. People are combing through it <laughs> very extensively. So, you know, we've all, we've based a lot of it mostly on rumors. Um, basically what it, what we've seen, some of the top line things are it, it attempts to regulate things more within North America, more within the United States, mm -hmm. um, sort of cutting out other countries, um, you know, really making it a, a trilateral deal between the three countries and not necessarily opening up for other countries to mm -hmm. sort of take a part in. Um, you know, the update is true. You know, they, they have they have some additions for sort of new modern digital economy issues. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, um, all that might be for nothing because, you know, mm -hmm. the president has to or not just the president, but the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, he has to take this deal now to Congress, and he has to deal with a majoritively Democrat uh, House, and they might not be so keen on this new deal. So if, if the Democrats are not keen on this new deal and it has been signed, um, if this goes into some kind of limbo, uh, do we simply continue to operate under the NAFTA rules? Or are you know, we've seen other presidents enter into or, or, or not enter into other, uh, other treaties. You know, for example, if you look at the Iranian nuclear deal, the other parties to that say that they are still abiding by that deal, even though the United States has said it pulled out. So does the United States, Canada, and Mexico continue to operate under the old system until the U.S. gets this ratified? Um, yeah, so the president himself has threatened to withdraw from NAFTA, the original NAFTA. Mm -hmm. I think as a negotiating tactic to sort of get the ball rolling on the the new trade the usmca deal um uh there's still a lot of questions and i think there's a lot of uncertainty whether he can actually do this mm -hmm. um he you know the president uh, has certain authorities he can and cannot do uh trade specifically comes under the authority of congress mm -hmm. he can negotiate the deals and sign what's essentially a treaty of sorts but it, it's congress that has to enact the laws mm -hmm. and remove the laws that basically make the framework of the deal now for someone like you who just kind of lives and breathes this stuff um, regularly, when you see what's been going on in Wall Street right now, wh what does that tell you about how Wall Street feels about all of this? Because obviously, you know, anytime you have volatility in the markets, everybody tries to read the tea leaves. What are they responding mm -hmm. to? What are they concerned about? And, you know, you and I just discussed three massive, massive trade issues. Mm -hmm. China, the European Union, and, and NAFTA. Is it the uncertainty and the validity in areas like that that has a role in maybe some of what we're seeing in, in Wall Street right now? Oh, yeah, certainly. I think uncertainty is probably the key driver in what, you know, what's all that's happening. You know, um, I, I think if you just look at the market the past, you know, six months, you know, volatility is the name of the game right now. Mm -hmm. um, Breaking it up, I think maybe maybe moving backwards would be a little bit easier. Right. So with the USMCA, the new NAFTA negotiation, um, I think markets do see some sort of sort of certainty settling in there. Uh, you know, they they see that a deal has been made. You know, Congress is the big player in this. Uh, that'll be you know negotiated over the next year next year, but that'll be fine. Um, the next one is the US EU trade agreement. This is also something that's sort of in limbo right now. Mm -hmm. So nothing too much to worry about. Um, you know, the, the deal between the President uh, Trump and the uh, European Trade Commissioner, uh, Mr. Juncker, the deal that they made earlier this year, again, good deal. China, that is the leading factor in uncertainty. That's what's driving markets, I think, down right now. 
Riley Walters is with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Riley, if people would like to read some of your work, how can they uh, access uh, some of the things you've done over there sure. at Heritage? Uh, www.heritage.org. You can look me up, uh, or you can just Google Riley Walters. Uh, my <laughs> profile page at the Heritage website should pop up, uh, I think, in the first. All right. Riley Walters, we appreciate you joining us here on the On the Hill podcast. We thank you. Thank you. All right. We thank you as well for uh, joining us here from Washington. This is the studios of Fox 5 DC podcast. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día, es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyendo los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.